Welcome, everybody, to this episode of the Tabletop Battlefield Live. My name is Jason. I'm the creator of the Tabletop Battlefield. And tonight, we're continuing our series of painting the miniature cipher Lord of the Fallen by Games Workshop. This is the fourth episode in this particular series. And what I think I'm going to do in terms of my random talking topic for the night, last time, episode three, it kind of gave the state of 3D printing as, a rel- as it relates to tabletop state of home 3D printing as it relates to tabletop gaming in 2017. And I think for tonight, I really want to get into the whole weeds of 3D printing. So I've been diving headfirst into it, figuring out a lot of little details and things like that. And my goal here is really to just do one of my brain dump episodes where I just kind of talk and throw out things. Just to give you an idea of what you're getting into if you actually want to try to use 3D printing in tabletop gaming. So we'll talk about that here in just a minute. Let me bring you an up-to-date with what I've done with Cypher up to this point. Cause I did a little bit of work on him since my last episode. So let me just bring him over to my other camera here so you can see a little bit closer up. Oh, that's holding the right spot. There we go. So since episode three, all I really did is I finished up his cloak. I must admit I'm not super thrilled with how the coloring all turned out and the shading and things, but it'll work. It's good enough for now. Um, you know, I'm it it'll work. I'm not terribly concerned about it. So today, what I'm gonna do is move on to the inside of the cloak. So all this dark areas here, it's got to be a reddish color. You got a whole bunch over here as well. And if I have time, I'm either gonna move on to working on his face which is going to be a lot of fun details of painting a fleshy face color, as well as he's got a little bit of a chain here from the cape that's holding the cape on. I'll probably paint that up too. So we'll go in order of inside the cape, then face, and then chain if, I, if things go all that long. But as usual, I'm probably going to be streaming for about an hour. And if you are watching live here in the twitch.tv chat, feel free to ask any questions as to what is going on. And if you are watching this later on YouTube or listening to it in the Tabletop Battlefield podcast feed, feel free to go ahead and post any questions in YouTube if you want me to talk about something in the future. Um, something other than you should use my music music library, because I do get a lot of those apparently. That's a, that's a popular spam comment topic right now on YouTube, is to go and find random videos and p- post saying that you should use their music in YouTube. They get a lot of those comments. <laughs> um... Other than that, of course, uh, if you listen to me on the Tabletop Battlefield feed, the old email address, jason at roccosoftware.com, still works, as well as Twitter, tt underscore battlefield. You can send me a message there. That's my personal Twitter account. And I can possibly talk about something you want me to talk about on a future episode of the Tabletop Battlefield live painting. But to start off here with Cypher's Cape, I am working with Mephiston Red. This is one of the Games Workshop's base color. It's kind of a darker red color. And as usual, I've got my artificial layer extra small brush, as well as a wet palette over here, just sitting a little bit off camera. So I'm using a wet palette to thin down all my paints before I apply them to the miniature. Now, let's go ahead and have some fun talking about the real details of 3D printing. So in the last episode, I gave you guys a pretty good overview of the different types of 3D printing technology that are out there. We talked about FDM, which FDM printing is mainly what you see right now in the home 3D printing market. If you imagine a 3D printer sitting on someone's shelf and you kind of imagine how it works, where you got the little layers being built up one at a time by a little device that goes along and, and deposits small amounts of plastic one tiny little bit at a time, that is an FDM printer. So your altar makers, your Prusas, um, those cheap things you see on Amazon for 300 bucks, which I have no idea if they're any good or not. Those things are all FDM printers. SLA was the other type that Form Labs primarily makes, but some other companies are making. And that involves lasers and resin. But I'm not going to really worry about that a whole lot tonight, because I'm not familiar with that technology very much at all. I've been working a lot recently with my Ultimaker to build up a 3D printed arena for the game Arena Rex. And it's turning out really good. Of course, I don't actually have any pieces sitting next to me. (laughs) They're all over on my kitchen table. But here's the things you need to know if you're going to get yourself into 3D printing. First and foremost, as I mentioned a little bit last time, I think I might have actually talked about this. I don't quite remember. But we're still well short of consumer-friendly technology. 
so if you are interested in trying out 3D printing, you are going to have to learn a handful of new skills and new terminology and really get to understand a lot about 3D modeling. Because here's the biggest problem the community, well, you know, it's tough to say this is a big problem. This is a big problem if you, if you want the technology to really truly go mainstream, where much like we have inkjet and laserjet printers where it's truly mainstream, where you know you have a device attached to your computer, you hit, you choose your document you're printing, you hit print, and something comes out. That's that's the kind of level when I talk about mainstream. That's kind of what I'm talking about. You know, you're getting that easy to use. 3D printers nowhere near that level. The challenge that we have to get to that level is the market is so heavily fractured. And in some ways, you know, this isn't a bad thing. There's a lot of fantastic different choices. You can really choose a 3D printer that matches exactly what you want uh, at, your, at the price point you want. A lot of the printers are highly upgradable. My Ultimaker is entirely open source. You can do pretty much whatever the heck you want to it, and that's fantastically awesome. And there's plenty of other printers like that as well with that level of customization to it. But the challenge with that then means is that it's not easy to take the files and data you get from for using it with one 3D printer and move them over to another 3D printer. Because most 3D printers, all of FDM ones, use a type of file called G-code. G-code literally is the set of instructions to move the nozzle around and tell it when to deposit plastic and when not to deposit plastic. And it also controls attributes about that are unique to the printer such as the rate that the plastic is being extruded, how fast the nozzle travels around, and also it can control certain things like uh, fan speed, because a lot of 3D printers have cooling fans, because that's a very necessary process for many materials. They have heated beds that you build the objects on. So there's a lot of details that are very specific to the printer are also contained in these G-code files. And for that main, that reason, you can't take a G-code, say, from an Ultimaker 2 Go, and expect it to work on, like, a Prusa printer. Also, of course, the big thing with that is that different print bed sizes. You have only so much space you can print in a 3D printer, and that varies wildly from printer to printer. There's no commonality at all between printers in terms of how much stuff you can print. So what you end up having to get into are... You, what you get usually with 3D printed files are what are called ST STL files. I actually don't know off the top of my head what STL actually stands for, but what it is, is it's the actual 3D model you're trying to print. And it's just, it's generally just a pure 3D model. So it doesn't mean that that 3D model is actually printable in the form you get it. What, what you have is after some work, you have essentially the final 3D model that you want at the end of the whole printing process. So, for example, if I wanted to try to print a miniature, like, say, for example, Cypher I'm holding here, which just, granted, as a bit of a disclaimer, FDM printer's not very good at printing miniatures, say, like what I got in my hand right now, but if you want to do something like that, the STL file would pretty much contain the complete Cypher miniature. However, that, just because you have a complete STL file doesn't mean it's actually printable. Because, once again, there's all sorts of wonderful details about the, the exact 3D printer you're using as to, that can cause problems with a given model. Plus, you have to consider things called support. This is one of the big terminology things and concepts you have to understand if you really want to dive into 3D printing. Um, so to give you an example of support, as I talked a little bit uh, last time, if you imagine if you were printing this miniature here from the ground up, this little piece of, piece of this cloak right here is not on the ground. It's maybe a centimeter off the ground, which if you think about it, you know, printing it one layer at a time from top to bottom, when you get to that layer where the cloak starts, there's nothing below it. You have a centimeter of empty space, so any plastic you were to deposit to start designing the bottom of that cloak would all of a sudden fall down and just land on the plate and then the layer above it would do the same thing and, and you'd end up with a soupy pile of plastic instead of an actual miniature because there was nothing to support that initial layer of plastic you wanted to put down. 
So that's where things called support materials come in. Support materials are a structure, a fairly flimsy structure per se, that is built around and below models so that when you actually get to the first real layer of a model, there's some amount of plastic there that can go ahead and support that layer of the plastic. And when it comes to support materials, there's a whole bunch of different ways you can do it. And it varies, it's somewhat varies printer to printer because some printers have the ability to print multiple types of material at once. At once. Whereas, for example, in Ultimaker 2 Go, I can only have one particular type of plastic or some other similar material loaded in the printer at a time. But what some more fancy printers can do is I can print the support material in one type of material, one type of plastic, and I can print the actual miniature in a separate type of plastic, or a separate material altogether. Some can do some kind of a waxy material, things like that, and that makes it easy to remove the support material from the final miniature. Because if you print support material in the same material as the final miniature, sometimes you got to do a little bit of cleanup work to actually get rid of all the support material. It's a little, little bit of fiddling. Sometimes it sticks pretty well to the final miniature. I frequently have to use needle-nose pliers to remove the support material. But that's, that's I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit there, talking about kind of the end process of support material. Because how the support material is generated in the first place, it can come from two different things. One, you could actually manually build the support material into the 3D model. So maybe that STL file you got has some little very thin columns or some sort of type of structure that would sit below the cape to support you know, the initial layers, whatever it may be, or below the gun, or below any kind of large overhanging part. And you don't see this a lot anymore because support materials can also be auto-generated. So most of the things that I print out that need support materials, I have my software that's called a slicer. This is another terminology you get to be familiar with. Automatically generate the support material. It has the ability to kind of analyze the 3D model and how it sits in my print bed. And then it can go ahead and figure out, okay, I need support materials here and there. And it's got its own kind of design for how to create this kind of fragile, easily breakable support material. And for the most part, these auto-generated support materials work pretty well. The one time where I don't use auto-generated support materials and where I have my own is when I start getting down into tiny little game tokens. I've made some little health trackers. Do I have any sitting around here? Actually, one second. Let me grab one sitting right over here on my desk. I have an older model. This might, this might not be the final thing, but I'm going to be... So you get something like this. So you can see I have a hold it from the side here. What this is is a little tracking token that you can slide onto the side of like a stat card of a miniature, you know, a miniature or a game or whatever it may be, and kind of track the position of something. So, for example, they have a little health bar. You would slide that on the bottom of the card, and the little needle would point to, you know, how much damage the miniature has taken along its health track. And that's something you're going to... I'm going to re release some of the stuff about those guys making for sale later on. But that's something I've been working on. And that guy right there, because it has a bit of an overhang, the little pointer thing sits off the ground relative to where the print starts at. But if I try to do auto-generate supports in that guy, it's so small that it gets really messy, ugly, and it gets tough to remove. So for that guy there, I actually had to design my own support material. So it's, it's one of those kind of weird things where support materials and support stuff is something you do kind of have to need and understand. So you still need to have some degree of competency with 3D modeling, or at least understand some of the concepts of 3D modeling and where you might need support and where you might not. So now I mentioned the terminology a minute ago, the slicer. So the slicer is a type of software, and there's, I don't know how many there are out there at this point. There's a whole bunch of open source ones. There's a couple of proprietary ones that cost a decent chunk of money. But what they do is they take your 3D model, 
and break it down into its individual layers. And that's really all they have to do, because they once they get it down into the individual layers, they can then in take additional attributes about the print process and generate that G code that I was talking about earlier. So then this is slicer software is the thing that goes from a 3D model to the actual instruction codes that you would then take to your 3D printer. And based on that, the 3D printer can then go ahead and do its thing and generate your 3D model. And this is where you really get into the weeds of 3D printing. Because there are some cases hundreds, I mean hundreds of types of attributes that you need to worry about for 3D printing. Now granted, under most circumstances you're probably not going to be worrying about all of them on a given print. And most of them are kind of things, there's a little bit of a stylistic choice to some of them in terms of how much detail you want, how fast you want things to go, but the other advantage is if you is that um, a lot of slicers kind of know about different types of 3D printers. The one I slicer I use currently is Cura. Cura is the open source one that's made by the guys who make the Ultimaker printers and since their software, since their software and printers are made by the same company, the Cura software works really well with the Ultimaker printers. It's got a whole bunch of default settings built into it right out of the box. I open it up and it knows that I'm working on Ultimaker 2 Go and a lot of those 500 plus settings I was talking about, I want to say it's 456 and I was looking at the number a while ago, but it already knows what all those things are for the Ultimaker to Go and I really only play around with maybe 20 of them in a normal basis and a lot of that and a lot of the times I'm tweaking maybe three or four of them so it's not like you really have to know all these things in detail but there's a very good chance that at some point you're gonna have to really dive into the details about your 3D printer and, and start fiddling with these numbers so let me talk about what some of these different detail numbers are First and foremost, the biggest one you're going to play around with the most is the layer height. Now, FDM 3D printers, like I said, they print the model up one tiny layer at a time. And we're talking about very, very thin layers. And layer height simply says, you know, how, um, how tall do you want each layer to be? For tabletop terrain, which, well, let's see. Here, let me put down this guy down for one second. Let me just go grab some of that terrain sitting right over here. So for the tabletop terrain that I'm wor I've been working with, I'll show you the pieces here in just one moment. Let me finish painting just another layer of Cypher's cloak here. But for my purposes, I work primarily with 0.2 millimeters. And that's actually a, a kind of a, quote, low quality print. Supposedly my Ultimaker to go can go all the way down to 0.06 millimeters. And this particular Ultimaker I'm keep talking about is not even a quote new Ultimaker. The Ultimaker 3 just came out fairly recently. And it could probably go smaller. I don't know off the top of my head where it can go, but you know, these printers are definitely getting better quality, you know, with each year and, and whatnot. But if at 0.2 millimeters, you get a good balance between speed and overall quality. So then let me go ahead and finish with that layer on the cloak. Let me just hold up some of these 3D printed pieces here so you can get an idea of what you're dealing with. Both these two terrain pieces were printed at 0.2 millimeters and and you can see there if you look very carefully you can probably see these lines going across that those are some of the layer lines. So you, what you're seeing there are very tiny imperfections between each layer of the 3D print and it's kind of noticeable in the camera right now because I'm zoomed in so much, but if I were to hold this thing back, let me go ahead and switch back to my main camera. You know, if you're a foot away from this thing, like you're just kind of sitting on the, like this is on the tabletop and you're, you know, standing back behind the table, you honestly can't see those layer lines very much. Um, we can go back into the zoomed in mode. Here's one that's unpainted, so you can get an idea of what it looks like pretty close to right outside the printer. There were like support materials here and here, here and here as well. I removed all that. But you can definitely see the layer lines a little bit better on the raw material. The painting and sanding and the priming that I do kind of covers those up a little bit. 
but the reality is you can never completely get rid of them. I haven't tried printing something that has like a 0.1 millimeter layer height or even that 0.06 millimeter layer height to see just how much of a difference that really makes. Because um, I think what's happening is when you're getting down to individual layers and when it comes to these printers, any small amount of mechanical intolerance is going to just move each layer at such a tiny, tiny, tiny amount. I mean, you're probably talking sub-millimeter level amounts from, you know, they don't, they're not exactly perfectly stacked on top of each other. What tends to happen then is you can see these little layer lines and the light and shadows just really catch these layer lines very well. Especially since the plastic is kind of shiny to begin with, but once you paint it, it's not quite as noticeable. But even then, I would probably imagine that each layer is not truly flat, right? Each layer is kind of like a fat uh, roll, for lack of a better phrase. A flat cylinder might be a more better way to say things. But, you know, it's not like it's a... If you think about, like, a Lego brick, where, you know, you have those Lego planks that are nice flat and flat you can stick on top of each other, it's probably not like that. You know, it's a little bit wider at the middle of the layer than it is, say, the top or the bottom of the layer. And it's not a big difference. I mean, once again, we're talking sub-millimeter sizes, but there's enough of a difference there that the light and shadow catches the layer lines, and you can see them pretty well. So when it comes to dealing with the layer lines, you know, you can just leave them there. They're, honestly, they're not the big of an issue, but if they really bother you, there are ways you can deal with them a little bit. Sanding can do a little bit in terms of dealing with layer lines. Some of these pieces I have for the final terrain set have been sanded down. But PLA, which is the type of plastic these things are made of, is frankly not that easy to sand. Plus, if I were to go ahead and try to sand that down quite a bit, I would probably lose a lot of the detail. Because this particular piece here, all those little the bigger bumps you see are actual intentional detail I put in the bricks, because the idea here was to create kind of a sandstone, Egyptian-style brick look to it, because I'm playing the Moratari, what the names? The Moratari, they're the Egyptian faction from Arena Rex, they're the Egyptian-Greek faction, so I was trying to, I'm creating a, you know, a Egyptian-style arena. Um, so I was creating a little sandstone look. So I, if I were to try to sand down all the layer lines, I'd lose some of that much more larger, obvious detail, which I don't want to do. So there's 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 some prob there's some difficulties here with that particular approach. But I'll talk about something else here in just a moment. Now I'm going to move on to adding some shadows to the cloak, the inside of the cloak here. So I'm bringing out some oak brown. This is from the Army Painters War Paint series, and I'm just going to mix this in with the Mephiston red to get a little bit of a darker color to it. And I'm going to kind of paint that, then the shadows of his cloak. Oops, one second. I did a very good job of mixing it up. But another option, two other options you have for getting rid of these layer lines is, one is that I got some auto body primer. Now a lot of auto body primers have, have some degree of scratch filling to them. So there you go, a little bit of the oak brown with the Mephiston red to get a little bit darker color. And this does help a little bit. If you follow the instructions of the particular auto body primer and you spray that on, before you paint up your model, you paint up your terrain piece, it does make a little bit of a difference. Some of the more noticeable layer lines are still there. See, it's not a complete solution, unfortunately, but it does look better. And the entire, nearly the entire set of this particular arena is going to end up being primed with a red auto body primer. It just it works good enough to where it's it's worth the extra money because the auto body primer. <laughs> it's funny. Worth the extra money. Um, the reason I'm laughing there is right. Auto body primers, these scratch filling stuff, are about seven bucks a can. Whereas you know, Games Workshop's primers like twenty bucks a can. So I don't know why I'm saying it's worth the extra money. I think it's rel. I'm talking relative to you know your your typical hardware store, grocery store spray paint primer, which is like three bucks. Sometimes even cheaper if you get like the no name stuff. <laughs> So that does help a little bit with the layer lines. 
Um, it's not a perfect solution, but doing a little bit of light sanding combined with the auto body primer does help quite a bit. And also the sanding too, even though it doesn't quite get rid of all the layer lines, it does break them up. So you get kind of pieces of layer lines here and there mixed with areas of flat, and that makes them also not quite as noticeable. It's kind of like camouflage, military camouflage, where military camouflage is some, some of it, like naval military camouflage, you don't really see anymore. But you know, that was kind of designed to break up the silhouette of a vehicle and makes it hard to see. Kind of sanding can do that with layer lines. Um, and then the other option with dealing with layer lines is there's a material out there I haven't used yet. I want to get some. It's called XTC3D. It's kind of an unfortunate naming with a little XTC thing to it, but it does not actually have anything to do with the drugs. <laughs> I don't know why they named it that, to be honest with you. But it is a product made by SmoothOn. SmoothOn is a resin manufacturer as well as all sorts of other cool products that involve miniature making, model making, uh, special effects. I use a lot of their resin products when making the Caladagian miniatures. I use their mold making materials. But what it is, it's a type of resin that's designed to be self-leveling. So you can spread it over a PLA miniature with all its tiny little layer lines and it fills them in. I haven't tried it yet. Like I said, I do want to get a hold of a bottle of this stuff. It's pretty cheap. It's like 25 bucks to give you a basic starting kit, and you get quite a bit in there. But the people who have used it, a lot of them say it works really well. It doesn't really visibly hide the layer lines per se. What it does is it, it fills them in with a clear surface. So if you do want to completely get rid of the layer lines, you have to paint the object, which, granted, you're doing miniature terrain making, so most of what you would be making is going to be you know painted over but it looks like a really great solution for the layer lines but you know I will certainly be getting some of that and give them more of an update on that in the future so I just went ahead and put a little bit more oak brown inside the Mephiston red and I'm just running it a little bit further in the little recesses of his cloak so mixing in like I said a little bit more oak brown relative to the Mephiston red now we can go back to talking about more settings inside your slicer program. And what I'm going to do here, I'm actually going to bring up my slicer program um, on the screen. I think I can probably share it with you. Let me see here. Where is it? There's Kira. So let me, let me load it up here. I can share my screen on the Twitch stream, and you can really kind of get an idea of what some of these really crazy settings are. And I'll jump back to painting cipher here in just a minute, but it's going to take a minute for it to load up. But there are some other settings that are really helpful to know about, and it's once again, a lot of this stuff is dependent on knowing what your 3D printer can and cannot do. So here we go. Let me shift a few things around here. Without Okay, we're going to slide you over there. And I think if I hit... Oh boy. Um, let me know. It should be over here somewhere, right? Display capture. There it is. There we go. Alrighty. So this is what you see in a slicer program. This is Cura. So you know, this is the thing I've been talking about for the last 10-15 minutes here. This is what you're looking at. So we talked about layer height. The next one in, in line, it says on the right-hand side there, are those are the most commonly used options. Let me see if I can bring up something. Where is where was it? I remember there is there's a settings thing. You can just see how brutal this can get. Um, settings configure settings visibility. All right. So this window I just popped up here. This is the settings visibility thing. What this these are all the possible settings you could have to play around with for 3D printing. Now, don't be intimidated. This is that 400 and some list that I was talking about. One, because the vast majority of them, you're probably never, ever going to really have to deal with. You'd be getting into the really hardcore details of 3D printing, or you've built your own 3D printer. Because the good news is, with any, most of these slicer programs, you can probably find a settings file for your particular printer 
that'll take care of you know most of that important critical details because you know you, I, it's it, it just be impossible to try to learn all that stuff because like I said there's hundreds of things there. But the next thing we're going to talk about here are these two sections: shell, which is wall thickness, top bottom thickness, and infill density. These are things that you don't have to worry a whole lot about. You generally, it's one of those things you kind of set up and just keep it as is. Because what happens is most 3D prints are not actually uh, solid. In fact, the vast majority of them are next to hollow or near hollow. And this is mainly to reduce the amount of filament you use. Um, so, of course, wall thickness and top and bottom thickness is exactly what it says it is. They're just how thick do you want the various walls to, to be. So, like this little piece I'm showing here again, you have about 0.8 millimeter thick walls and, you know, and one millimeter thick a top and a bottom. And that is, that's plenty strong enough, honestly. This is work great as a terrain piece. There's similar settings in this guy here. So you don't, they don't need to be very thick. And the inside is what you talk about, the infill. So infill is how the printer is going to go ahead and fill up the inside of that hollow area. And by, what it means by like a 10% infill rating is that it, there's like a lattice structure in there. I can't really show you it because actually I can show it to you. Um, that's actually, it's not a great example, this piece of got right here, because it's actually not infilled. This is a failed print. This is actually support structure, what you're looking at here, because it was kind of botched up. But infill is something kind of similar to this, where you get lines going back and forth, and it's like this crisscross pattern that just gives a little bit of structure inside the print without using a whole lot of material. I need to grab one more color, so I will be right back. I just got to run around behind my screen here and grab my black. Uh, nope, that's Caliban Green. Uh, there's a bad in black. Okay, cool. But the only really fiddly part about the wall thickness and stuff that I was just showing off there is those numbers do depend on your layer height and also your nozzle size. <laughs> this is where you have to kind of really get in the details of what your printer has. Nozzle size is exactly what you think it is. You know, there's a little nozzle on the end of your 3D printer, and it's got a very, very tiny opening to it that it uses to deposit the plastic out. Um, and the wall thickness has to be a multiplier of that nozzle size. Because, for example, the nozzle on my Ultimaker to go is 0.4 millimeters thick. Therefore, it's actually impossible for me to create a wall that's 1 millimeter thick because it's not divisible by 0.4. I can only lay things down 0.4 millimeters wide at a time. I can do a top and bottom thickness of 1 millimeter thickness because at that point, top and bottom depends on your layer height. Layer height in this case is 0.2 millimeters, which 1 millimeter is divided by 0.2 millimeters. Yay for math. This is where you start getting into some of the math of 3D printing. Not hard math, but there's math there nonetheless. So now, for the shadows of his cloak, I'm going back to talk about the, the miniature I'm painting up here. The really shadow parts, I took some Abaddon black, which is Citadel's, GW Citadel's base color black, mixed it in with the dark brown, Mephiston red mixture there. And I'm going to now paint that into the little creases here, just a little bit at a time, just to get a very dark, some dark lines in the inside of his cloak. All right, so that was that's really about all you need to know for the wall thickness and things. You can honestly get away with the small values, and the, the prints are still plenty strong enough. Let's see, what do we have here? Oh, retraction. I'm gonna talk about retraction in a moment. Let's talk about print speed first. This is this is one of those things. It is exactly what it it kind of sounds like it is. It's saying how fast should you extrude the plastic from the printer, and this is something that really depends primarily on your printer, but also it depends on what you're trying to print as well. All printers have vastly different extrusion speeds. The Ultimaker 2 Go, for the things that have been shown off here all uh, night long, those are 0.2 millimeters, sorry, 0.2 millimeters layer height, but I used a 60, what number was it? Uh, 60 millimeters per second of extrusion. So you can kind of figure out the, I'm laying down 0.4 millimeter thick layers, 
0.4 millimeter wide layers that are 0.2 millimeters thick, and I need to extrude at a rate of 60 millimeters of that material from the nozzle. And this is where you're getting into some, you know, 3D volume math. So if you want to start playing around with these numbers, you do kind of have to start doing some very basic number crunching. I mean, you're, you're multiplying height times width by depth because you need to make sure that the amount of material coming out of the nozzle doesn't exceed, you know, what your printer can feed into it. And you need to know that those numbers I just rattled off there have to be like less than this print speed per second. Otherwise, what happens is the nozzle's moving too fast or it's not applying or not depositing enough um, material out and you get weak and fragile layers. So this is one of those kind of just num numbery things you got to really think about when you're planning out your print. And it's not purely based on your printer's capacity. Your printer has an upper limit. If you go above that upper limit, I've tried on the Ultimaker to go, if I crank this thing up to like 90 millimeters per second, what happens is the nozzle's moving a lot faster and it's trying to deposit plastic a lot faster than the machine can extrude it out. And you, what you get is this wispy, weird looking layers that are frankly aren't complete, they're weak, they're fragile, and the print just looks like terrible. So every printer does have some sort of upper limit that you do have to worry about. Um, but, like I was saying, certain materials or certain small things, you do want to turn down your print speed. So even though you can print at a certain speed, not all models that you want to print, you want to print at your maximum speed. I was printing out some tiny little game tokens. I'll be showing those off at some point in the near future. I have to get a different color PLA to make them look really cool. That's in the mail. Well, I ordered that today. It's not in the mail yet. But these particular miniature, these particular little tokens, I, when I had them running at 60 millimeters per second, the top layers of the miniature, for whatever reason, were really thin. So you kind of see through the top of the token through the bottom. So basically it wasn't depositing enough plastic on the top of the token to be able to get a complete, essentially a complete ceiling to it. And, you know, I was able to think about this for a minute. Okay, if I turn down the rate I'm extruding the plastic, I can go ahead and get a more complete fill. Of course, by turning down this rate, you're increasing the print time, which may or may not be an issue, but it's something to know about. So we'll talk a bit about debug, debugging prints here in a little bit. I got another half an hour, maybe 20 minutes I'll stick around for. So I got more time to talk about stuff. But this is a case of where I, okay, I recognized what my 3D printer was doing. I knew why it was doing what it was doing. And I'm like, okay, I need to, to adjust this value to get the end result that I wanted to get. And then in this case, it was a print speed. Now, let's talk about enable retraction. Yay for retraction. I had a heck of a time with this process, printing some columns. Let me go grab those quickly. I'll bring up the display here one more time. This thing right here where I'm circling with a mouse, enable retraction, retract at layer change, retraction extra prime amount, and retraction minimum travel. Let me grab another printed piece over here. I threw away the ones that failed, so I can't show you what the failed ones look like, but, you know, I can show you what the actual final ones look like. So what is retraction? This is another one of the kind of important things you have to understand with FDM 3D printers. You know, as I mentioned, 3D, FDM 3D printers, they take a long piece of plastic, shove it through a hot nozzle, and, and deposit it on the build surface that way. Well, there are times where you don't want the material to be coming out of the nozzle. Like there's, you know, you're moving the nozzle around a different part of the printer to where it's a totally separate part of maybe even a different model altogether. Retraction is something that allows the printer to reverse the, the little plastic filament, that's the, the plastic rods are called filaments, and pull it out of the nozzle so that it can very quickly, in a short time, stop depositing in plastic for a short amount of time, and then when it gets to where it wants to, it reinserts the filament and begins the process of depositing the material all over again. And we'll talk about that in just one moment. I'm going to add a few highlights to the inside of the cloak here using Citadel's layer paint, Evil Sun Scarlet. 
This is a little bit brighter color. It's like the step-up paint from the Mephiston Red. And I'm going to just put a little bit of this on some of the, quote, highlights. Granted, this whole cape's kind of in shadow, but it'll look kind of cool. You get a little bit more of a color variation in this thing. The problem I ran into with retraction on these columns here, so I've got this, these are part of the Egyptian theme again. This is the bottom of the column. Here's the top of the column. And, you know, it connects to another piece to form like a gateway thing. Inside this column is that support structure I was showing off a little bit ago. But in order to print this column, it had to do a lot of retraction. So it would very quickly pull out the piece of filament. It would move it a very short distance. The nozzle move a very short distance. Those columns there are maybe one and a half centimeters wide at most. And then it would start the whole process of printing again and then quickly retract the material, print again. And it would do this process where it very quickly retract and then insert the material, retract, insert it. And it would do that over and over again. And the, what was happening is there's a feeder on the back of the printer and this is the mechanical device that takes the printer, or takes the filament off the spool which, and shoves it into the printer. The problem is when it was constantly doing retraction and insert, retraction and inserting, without really doing a lot of printing, what was happening, this feeder device was really digging in to the filament. So the feeder device has some very sharp, not sharp teeth on it, but it has teeth so that I can just grab on the filament and push it up into the printer. Um, so you'd actually see, if you ever look at filament that's been through a 3D printer but has not been extruded, actually let me grab some, I know where I got a little bit of that, I can show you what I'm talking about. I think I just threw a bunch of it out a minute ago. Oh, come on. Yes, yes I do. Sweet, here we go. Oh, this is awesome. This is actually the inland filament. This is the cheaper filament too. You can see, again, I the idea of what can go wrong with this stuff. Um, so if you look here on this piece of filament I've got, let me see, okay, let me switch to my main camera. I don't know if there's any better here, guys, but, um, maybe I can see, let me see, maybe you can see, there, you can really see it there. This is where things went the, really went awful. Um, but you can see how it's really flat right here. This is a case of the feeder device is really digging into the filament. And you can see there's, little, there's a lot of teeth marks here. This is the, basically where the, the feeder device was grabbing this filament and trying to shove it into the printer. And to some degree, a filament's going to show those teeth marks. It's just a side effect of the type of feeder the Ultimaker has. The problem is when, you're, when the feeder is constantly kind of um, inserting and extracting you know, a piece of the film in the same spot, it really works down to the part where you get this really heavily flattened stuff. And the problem is once you start flattening the filament this much, the filament is now too wide to properly go through the feeder and through the tube that connects the feeder to the print nozzle. And this causes the printer to jam up. And the problem is the printer doesn't know it's jammed up. <laughs> it just keeps trying to print happily along the line but there's no more plastic coming out or very small amounts of plastic coming out and you end up with this weird very stringy type of structure and eventually it is just you know there's literally no plastic coming out and even though the printer just spent 5 hours quote printing you have no finished product because you the plastic jammed up you know an hour into the print and you just have this piece of fluffy stuff sitting on your print bed and that happened to me a couple times with these printers. So I was, this is one of those things where I had, I had to figure out what was going on. And what I was noticing was, okay, why, you know, I, I was noticing that when I re removed the jam filament from the feeder, I could see that it was being heavily compressed. And that um, because it was being heavily, com it was heavily compressed, I had a little pair of calibers I have over here. These things can become your friend with 3D printing. These are calipers. They measure very small diameters of things. Let's turn them on. Let's turn on here. And let's see. I believe Cypher has a 40 millimeter base. Oh, maybe 35. 30 millimeter. He's about a Cypher has about a 31 millimeter base, in case you're wondering. But that's what this thing is, right? There are these devices that can measure small distances very, very well. And 3D printing filament 
those things become your best friend. But I was able to use those things and realize that the diameter of the filament was now greater than what I can safely run through my 3D printer, and that's why I was having these problems. So I was like, okay, why is that happening? So I sat there and I kind of watched the 3D printer as it was jamming up, and I noticed before it started jamming up, it was doing a lot of this retraction. I could, Because there's a clear tube, like I said, that runs from the feeder to the nozzle, I could see that the filament inside there was moving back and forth really, really fast. And I'm like, ugh. And I figured out, I figured out that it was this constant motion of back and forth that was causing it to jam up really well. And so what these, these retraction settings get to, that's a very long story to explain why retraction settings are important, <laughs> is these, these control how much the thing retracts and how often it retracts. So what I actually did to solve the problem, there's a setting here that says retraction minimum travel. Is that what it was? I think that's, yeah, that's what I, I changed. And what that is saying is, how far must the nozzle move before I actually, before the printer actually does the process of retraction? And by default, it's 0.8 millimeters, which is next to nothing, which isn't a really big deal. It's a very safe number to do because if you don't, if you have retraction turned off or you have a very large retraction minimum travel, what you get is this weird stringy material. You kind of get like a very thin lines of filament kind of run all over the place as it kind of drips out a little bit as the nozzle moves around. But there is so many tiny movements in this particular print, it was causing, you know, the damage to the filament and jamming up. So what I ended up having to do is I just bumped that number up to 10 millimeters for this particular print, which 10 millimeters is one centimeter. And what that did is it meant that as the printer was printing the support structure inside of these columns where it was doing the rapid retraction, it no longer did retraction. Because it's, you know, it's maybe, a, like I said, it's about 15 millimeters, a little bit over a centimeter here from, you know, side of the column to side of the column. So it no longer was the nozzle within a particular print layer of a column actually moving more than 10 millimeters and therefore was not actually retracting anything until it left the column and moved to the other column on the print bed. And that reduced the amount of retractions enough to where it was no longer damaging the filament. <laughs> so this is just an ex another example of some of the wonderful, wonderful debugging you're going to have to do. You're going to have to learn when you see a particular flaw in a model, what does it mean? And then how do you fix it? <laughs> All right, let's see. It's 8.15 right now, guys. I will probably be live streaming for about 10 more minutes. Um, if you are watching live here and have any questions about what's going on, or if you want me to talk about a certain aspect of 3D printing, I can go ahead and I can talk about that for the last 10 minutes. I think I've kind of gone over all the horrible, horrible details that I've had to deal with so far. Um, most of the other stuff is really just default things I don't play around with too much. Oh, I got, I got one more thing I can talk about if there's nothing immediately impressing that, that people want me to talk about. And it's filament diameter. But before I get to that, I need to start working on his face. Of course, his face here is nice and... It, hidden away in his cloak. So I'm going to give him you know, a Caucasian flesh color initially. This is Ki Ke Kislev, we'll call it Kislev flesh. Kislev flesh color, a layer paint from Citadel's paint line. And I'm going to apply this in very thin layers and do a lot of thin layers, more than just you know your usual two thin layers you might be familiar with because of certain Games Workshop personality. On miniatures, the faces are naturally an area with tons of little details. And it can be very easy to go ahead and put on paint too thick that ruins detail. So putting on five, six very thin layers is honestly not a bad thing. And what I'll probably do is get just enough of a couple layers down to cover up his face so that you can cover it up. And then I might mix in a tiny bit of red. And this is a very difficult process to do, but if you mix in oftentimes a tiny bit of red with your flesh colors, that kind of gives the hints of blood vessels underneath your skin. Because, you know, if you look at your skin, and depending, assuming if you have Caucasian skin, which, you know, I don't know. Sure. Um, 
you, you'd, you'd be able to see the fact that there is, uh, you know, red colors underneath your skin tones. And you want to try to capture that a little bit in miniatures because it looks more realistic um, if you're trying to give that particular type of skin color on your miniatures. All right. So I got a very watered down Kiev flesh over here. And I'm going to start painting it to his face. Now, filament diameter. That was the, you know, the stuff I just showed a minute ago. <laughs> your printer takes a, a certain filament diameter. I, I'd imagine there may be some out there that can take multiple types, but in general, most printers use one and only one diameter of filament. And for the most part, it's not really that hard to choose the right filament. You know, look up what size your printer needs and choose it. You would think that's what it would be. Um, but here's where it gets a little bit dicey. So the Ultimakers use 2.85 millimeter filament. But very frequently, because other printers use similar size filaments, 2.85 millimeter filament is often close to 3 millimeter filament. And you would think, and the 0.15 you'd think wouldn't make a huge difference. And a lot of times, it's not that base change size that really does make a whole lot of difference. The filament I showed off earlier is the Inland brand filament. This is Micro Center's house brand. And it is actually not 2.85 millimeter diameter. It is about 2.9, 3 millimeter average diameter. The problem you run into in the case of the Ultimaker and some other printers is if you go too far from the proper diameter, so for example, in the case of the Ultimaker, when it get above 3.1 millimeters or so, it jams up the printer. So here's where these small distances really start to matter. So three, three millimeter base diameter, if it has a plus minus 0.1 millimeter or say 0.08 millimeter thickness change, because no filament is perfectly the same diameter across the entire roll. Good filament, I now use Melt Inks filament. I've bought a roll of that. I've got a couple more rolls coming in the mail. That is officially 2.85 millimeter filament and has plus minus 0.05 millimeters. That's a very good high tolerance for uh, 3D printer filaments. And, but the problem is, you know, if you think you have a three millimeter filament plus minus 0 0.08, so possibly could get up to 3.08 millimeters thick. Once again, it wouldn't seem like that's very much, but then once that 3.80 millimeter thick filament runs through the feeder mechanism, what'll happen is the feeder mechanism's teeth dig into it a little bit and that actually increases the diameter of the filament, especially if you have the tension tension wrong or even tension a little bit too tight, by another 0 0.03, 0 0.04 millimeters. So now your three millimeter base filament is going up into the printer at 3.12 millimeters thick, which is too much for your printer's Bowden tube, which is the clear tube that runs from the feeder to the nozzle and it's jamming up. Or somewhere else, maybe up in the nozzle, maybe it's going to start jamming up, but somewhere along that point, you've now gone past your printer's safe value and it's starting to jam up. So the Ultimaker, as long as I buy actual 2.85 millimeter filament, that is true 2.85 millimeter filament, <sighs> because sometimes, like I said, some 2.85 millimeter filament is actually labeled as 3 millimeter filament, but you don't want to use real 3 millimeter filament. You want to use the stuff that's incorrectly labeled and has a true I mean, you can see I'm just rattling off numbers because it gets kind of screwy. <laughs> and that's the reason I had the calipers actually in the first place was to try to figure out if this inland filament was the proper diameter, and I thought it was. But when I ran it through my printer, I don't know if I had the tensioning wrong a little bit, but it, you know, half an hour into the print, it went ahead, the teeth really dug into it. This piece that I actually showed you here was the inland filament that jammed. Let me pull it back, bring it back up here. My teeth just really dug into the filament. Maybe this filament was softer than the Ultimaker stuff that came with my printer. I don't really know. There's, and it made the total diameter of the print, or the, the total diameter of the filament, it went, oopsie daisy. I just knocked a couple of SD cards in the ground. Let me measure this thing for you guys here. And what it did is it made the diameter of this filament 
That's not right. One moment. Count zero. All righty, that'll work. Somewhere along here, we are going to have the filament. Uh, let me see here. There we go. So you, you're going to run into a situation. You can see there, 3.37 millimeters. So we, I had a part of the filament's diameter went well above the safe value from my Ultimaker printer, and the filament jammed up, and and wonderfully, because of that, the print failed. Yay. <laughs> so just one more example of numbers that you really got to pay attention to. Let me just put, we'll let that thin paint dry in there. I got a couple layers of thin paint in there and I really got to let it dry before I do anything more. Let's see, I can, why don't I do that right now? We'll finish up with one last quick little thing for this particular episode here. And I'm going to start by putting my base coat on a little chain in front here that's holding his cloak on. And when it comes to painting gold, because I want to make this gold stand out a little bit more than the kind of rusty other parts of the miniature, I put down a base of the oak brown, and that serves as my base color for gold, because then when I don't put the whole thing coated in gold, I can leave some of the brown coming through, or put a very light coat of gold over certain areas, and what that does is it gives the gold a bit of a, a worn out, stained, tarnished look. Maybe it's been damaged by some horrific chaos magic. Or, you know, who knows? It's just, it's a look. I did this all through my Kairos Fate Weaver miniature. All his jewelry that was gold was painted this way. And between this, the actual gold layer, and using the Stormhost Silver to make gold highlights, it creates some really, really cool gold effects. But I think that is going to have to wait till the next episode of Painting Cipher. Because it's about time for me to sign off tonight. And I don't know what I'm doing tonight, to be honest with you. But I will come up with something. I, Yeah. Anyway. There we go. So I got the base coat of brown down. As you can see that very well, but the little chain around his neck they're holding the cloak on has a base coat of brown down. And finally, we're really starting to see quite a bit of the actual color to cipher. He's really starting to get his colors to him. The cloak's all done. The inside of the cloak is pretty much done. Some of his little decal, his little, uh, I don't know what you want to call it, little relics and icons and things on his armor is done. I just got to finish up his face. We got to paint the inside of the cloak there around his face red. That's going to be a wonderful, tedious process. <laughs> very, very tedious. And we've got his little belt items around here to paint up. Both of his guns. The sword he's carrying on his back. As well as, finally, we got to put him on and paint up this little chain link base fence thing that I made that he's standing on. And that's going to be... He's going to be positioned like this, overlooking some sort of chain railway, because I thought that would look kind of cool. But let me go ahead and bring the camera back up here to the main camera. So once again, I want to thank you guys for watching this episode of the Tabletop Battlefield Live. For more information about the Tabletop Battlefield, you can head over to TabletopBattlefield.com. That's the really old website that I haven't updated in like seven years. <laughs> Something new is coming. I started doing some sketching out some designs last night and putting together some of the basic CSS classes. So I'm kind of relaunching that website hopefully here in a few months. And I'm probably going to do a lot of focus on 3D printing as it relates to tabletop gaming. So I think there's definitely a growing interest in that particular market. But... You can follow me here on Twitch.tv to get the latest times whenever I go live painting these miniatures up. Because when it comes to the non or the random gaming stuff, I don't really have a set schedule for that. But Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, that's currently UTC minus four, is when I do Caladagia Live, which is my tabletop game franchise I've created. And I go ahead and I work on something related to the game. Over well, the past few months, I've been putting together some of the basic elements for a short film set in the Caladagia universe. So I've been doing a little bit of cinematography work, playing with some visual effects testings, rebuilding the costume behind me here. 
as well as kind of plotting out some of the basic elements of the film, and then I can then use that to start writing the final script. But that's going to be going on for a few more months. I think for the next few episodes of Caladasia Live, I will do some artwork and just do some concept art for the next release of Caladasia Fleet Commander, which is the planetary siege game set in the Caladasia universe. So with all that behind me here, I want to thank you guys once again for watching. I'm Jason, and have a good night.